Diversion Podcasts. A Diversion Podcast in association with iHeartRadio. This is the GOAT, Serena. Out of nowhere, I get a call on the phone from Richard Williams. I said, let me tell you something. You got the next Michael Jordan on your hand. And he put his arm around me and goes, no, brother, man. I got the next two. You can't know where you're going unless you know your past. Until you know what's happened about yourself and about your culture and about you. I mean, I don't think you're going to be as good or successful or whatever you want to do as you can. And you have to learn that. So for me, that's what we did. Like, I knew that only the strong survived. Only. For Serena to to continue to break these barriers all the time, it's just, it's, it's kind of dope. Welcome to The GOAT Season 2, Serena, Episode 1, The Courts of Compton. I'm Chanda Rubin, former World No. 6 Grand Slam semifinalist and doubles champion, alongside my co-host, Zena Garrison, a former Wimbledon finalist, World No. 4, and Olympic gold medalist. In this podcast, part of Diversion's GOAT series, Zena and I and our guests will celebrate the career and life of Serena Williams. We'll trace her path as she evolved from an outlier in the tennis establishment into the all-time Grand Slam singles champion and ultimately a cultural icon, Serena, as she is simply and universally known, is widely acknowledged as the GOAT, the greatest of all time in tennis. It has been quite a journey, and taking it with us, you'll hear all that went into the making of a GOAT. You will meet the people who played critical roles in her life and learn of the hardships, the triumphs and setbacks, the motivations, sacrifices, and tragedies that shaped her. This show will spill secrets and unlock doors. And you'll hear from Serena herself in her words. Take your understanding of athletic genius to the next level. As Serena recently told us. I really do believe it starts at a really young age and and having that positive reinforcement like, you know, hey, I can do this. You know, hey, I'm strong. Hey, I believe in me. It really starts with believing in yourself. And even if like you don't believe in yourself, it's like mental, like you get the mental coach. Just telling yourself that every day is like it means something and it does something. You may wonder. What's all this goat business about anyway? Wasn't so long ago that the word goat meant only a farm animal with horns and a beard. But we're living in an extraordinary era in sports. The sheer number of players who just may be the best ever in their sports have made the word goat part of our everyday sports conversation. The image of a goat has become a unique symbol of excellence. U.S. gymnast Simone Biles, who competed in the Olympic Games in Tokyo with the outline of a goat incorporated into her leotard. An entire line of goat t-shirts celebrates NFL quarterback Tom Brady. And let's not forget, LeBron James and Michael Jordan fans argue over which of the two stars is basketball's greatest. 
Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus are the subjects of a similar debate. Tennis doesn't have that debate. There's Serena and there's Serena. You can debate who is the GOAT in almost any field, but the conversation has a special resonance in sports where success or failure is measurable. Nowhere is the difference more dramatic than in tennis, a sport for individuals rather than teams. So if that's your metric, case is open and shut. So let's review. Serena Williams has 23 Grand Slam singles titles, the most of any tennis player, male or female, in the open era. She owned all four Grand Slam singles titles simultaneously on two occasions, and she has a career Grand Slam in doubles as well, along with four gold medals from Olympic Games. The stats are impressive, but what they don't tell you is that plenty of players go into the game with a shot at amassing similar numbers. Talent and superb athleticism are just the ante to get in the game. But what happens next is always unpredictable until all the hands are played. Serena is a magnificent athlete, but her greatness flows from sources that aren't just physical. I played Serena multiple times at the height of her dominance, and I can attest to all of them. A raging competitive instinct is one of them. An insatiable appetite for success is another. She also brings an intensity that is lit from within and increases as the going gets tougher. The willingness to lay it all on the line is yet another source of her greatness. Under pressure, a goat elevates her game rather than shrinking back and playing it safe. At a recent US Open, Serena said, the expectations are great, but I like having that expectation on my shoulders because it takes me out of mediocrity. I wouldn't have it any other way. I like the expectation. I always look at what it would be like if I didn't have it. I wouldn't be Serena Williams. The willingness to work to exhaustion long after you're already rich and famous is critical. There may not be an I in the word team, but there is in the word quit. That's for others, not the goats. Goats play the long game. A Super Bowl victory for Tom Brady? It's the start of something, not the end. A Grand Slam singles title for Serena Williams? That just whets her appetite. That hunger in Serena hasn't diminished by age, injury, or even motherhood. For Serena, goathood has never been a goal to shoot for. It is a way of life, her being. She draws motivation from every aspect of her life. Thus, she attributes the great improvement in her results during her career to a family trip she took to Africa. She told Zena and I, I've done a deep study about African-American history. In fact, I took courses in college on it because they really sometimes don't give you the, the nitty gritty. And they were very painful courses. 
like almost a decade ago was my first trip to Africa. I've been several times, but that was a really important part for me to learn my history. One of the least celebrated of Serena's skills is her capacity for personal growth in a field that has plenty of stunted personalities. She doesn't grow complacent despite accumulating fame and fortune. She never forgot where she started or who she was at that time. Goats tend to have powerful ties with their parents, who are often their most seminal influences. When Serena won the Australian Open in 2015, major title number 19, she acknowledged the role her family has played in her success in the trophy presentation ceremony. She told the crowd gathered in Rod Laver Arena, Growing up, I, I wasn't the richest, um, but I had a rich family and, and spirit and, and, and support. And, you know, standing here <laughs> with 19 championships is something I never thought would happen. You know, just I went on the courts with just a ball and a racket and a hope. My co-host Zena Garrison and I will be taking a deep dive into all of these aspects in this podcast. We'll be chatting with family members, rivals, coaches, and friends as we celebrate Serena. Along the way, it will also become clear that a GOAT has lessons for all of us. We may never be able to follow directly in their footsteps, but they show us the trail. And you are a trailblazer, Zena, and an inspiration, especially to me, because I saw you become the first Black woman to reach the Wimbledon final since Althea Gibson in 1958. Well, I, I've been really fortunate. And like you said, um, you know, I was thinking back about just my career. I mean, I played a lot of goats as far as it was considered in tennis. I played Chris Ever, I played Martina, I played Celis, you know, um, and also Steffi. But, you know, having the opportunity to mentor Serena is probably one of my biggest accomplishments because, you know, one thing I know about all the goats, they always want to get better. And Serena is definitely no different. And Chanda, you know, you are one of the very few people that actually had an opportunity to play. You know, I tease you the big hitter, but Serena <laughs> really was a big hitter. You know, what was that like? You know, it was incredibly intimidating initially. I, I played Serena first and lost to her at Wimbledon. And we know how dominant she has been at that tournament on that surface in particular. And it was the year where she was had already won, um, you know, her first major, but she was rising to number one in the world. And I lost that match pretty straightforward. And I had the opportunity to play her later that year. I was coming back from injury um, in, in January from a surgery. Um, and so it was a big opportunity, you know, to have played her at Wimbledon and then to get a chance to play her a couple of months later on the hard courts um, in, in California. And first and foremost, it's the power uh, that you <laughs> that you get from Serena. And I like you, Zena. I played a lot of great players. I played Monica Sellis and I played Steffi Graf and I played, uh, you know, Sabatini and Jennifer Capriati and Lindsay Davenport and, you know, Mary Pierce, big hitters uh, of the ball. But Serena, I remember one forehand during the match and I had a pretty big forehand. That's why you nicknamed me big hitter. I could go toe to toe. <laughs> I wasn't scared. Uh, but I remember a forehand. We were neutral in the middle of a point. And I thought I was in good position. And all of a sudden she just added an explosion of power 
behind this shot and it was the fastest forehand that I had seen come at me. I couldn't even make a move for it. And I had I had been playing against some big forehands, but that struck me and it has stuck with me. It is still the fastest forehand uh, that I have seen. And Serena wasn't known for her forehand as much as her backhand, which was a tremendous shot in her arsenal. Uh, but she could infuse power um, behind every shot because of her technique, because of, you know, how she could lean into the shots because of her physicality. And and that really struck with me. That and the other thing, Zena, was her intensity. And I know everyone who watches Serena, who has watched the Serena match, you know, they see how she brings it. You know, the fist pumps, the come ons, you know, she's working herself up in the toughest moments of the match, you know, she's elevating. And part of the reason why she can do that is that intensity. And it is, it's a real force out there on the court. (laughs) (laughs) In this first episode, we have the legendary teaching pro Rick Macy, who Richard Williams took Venus and Serena to in those early days to help build their games. It was incredible the stories that he told of his first impressions in seeing the girls. Well, I'm excited to welcome in Rick Macy, who is one of the most well-known coaches in tennis, a fantastic fundamental coach as well, owns an academy, still very much involved uh, in, in growing the sport, and also was the coach who helped to train Venus and Serena when they left Compton. So, Rick, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Excited to have you. No, glad to be here. It's great. Thank you. Well, I, I want to jump right in and, and ask you, you know, so how did it come about your involvement with Venus and Serena? Did you get the call? Did someone else contact you? How did you eventually make your way to Compton? Yeah, it was interesting. I was at the Easter Bowl with like 20 kids and an agent from uh, Advantage International, which is now Octagon, came up to me and said, hey, there's this little girl from Compton. She was in New York Times and uh, she's really good. And, you know, I'm sitting there going, OK, because I hear this all the time. <laughs> I think I was at I was at the Easter Bowl with Capriati. So, you know, I, I hear this a lot. So I got went back to Greenleaf and then out of nowhere, I get a call on the phone from Richard Williams. And he said, listen, we're thinking of coming to an academy. We're going to leave Compton. I have two two kids and um, we'd like you to come out and visit. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. I never really go to them. They kind of <laughs> go to tournaments or, you know, so it was kind of backwards. And then he told me where they're at, stuff like that. And uh, Richard was like the funniest guy. He goes, Rick, I guarantee you one thing. I won't let you get shot. Okay. And I started <laughs> I said, I got to meet this guy if nothing else. So it was like, it was in May and it was kind of slow. And uh, I said, you know what? I'm just going to go there and just check it out and mm. see, see what's happening, you know? And so I went to LA and drove to Compton. And that night the girls came uh, uh, to the hotel. And I remember Venus on one leg and Serena on another and Orsine there. And Venus and Serena just stared at me for like three straight hours. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, this is like so surreal, you know, and Richard's asked me a bunch of questions. And then after it was all over, he said, uh, we'll pick you up at seven o'clock in the morning and we're going to East Compton Hills Country Club. Okay. And so they picked me up at seven in the morning in this bus and, you know, I get in and there's <laughs> That's a spring what I was sticking up on you. the right side and I get harpooned in the buttock and there's garbage in there. 
And it was just, it was crazy. Rick, so that's that what was, I, Rick, that's what I wanted to ask you. Did you ride in the famous bus? I did too. Yeah. It was like one of those old hippie bands and it was wobbling and, and, uh, you know, we went to the park and, you know, it was so funny because when we went to the park, um, there was a bunch of people playing basketball. People were passed out in grass. And I said, wait a minute, this ain't East Compton Hills Country Club, you know, that we're at. And the kids get out. And it was really funny because, like, the people on the basketball court kind of parted. Yeah. Because we had to go to the tennis court. And you know what they called Richard? King Richard. Yeah. Now, this was in 1991. And they called Serena Jamaica. That's her yep. real name. Mm-hmm. And they called Venus VW. And I think because... The New York Times was there like three months earlier. They kind of had a little bit of uh, publicity. And so it was really, it was really just very, very different. You know, I'm at a five-star resort. <laughs> at the, so it was just, it was different. In the first hour we're on the court and I said, they're not any better, any worse than any kids that I've seen until we started doing competitive stuff. And, then and you- the whole thing just blew up. It changed. The running got different. The footwork different, mm-hmm. the desire different, strokes got a little better. They were still arms, legs, and hair flying every rich direction. But when they started competing and I saw the way they moved and tried, I knew the other stuff could be taught. And I went up well, to Richard. I said, let me tell you something. You got the next Michael Jordan on your hand. And he put his arm around me and goes, no, brother, man, I got the next two. As one of the top developmental pros in tennis, Macy heard and saw it all. He saw parents who were convinced their kids were the next tennis superstars like Andre Agassi or Chris Everett. He saw kids dressed in the most expensive gear whose strokes were as good as countless lessons could buy, but who were too slow, too mechanical, or in some other way, too deficient to have much of a future at the highest of levels. But Venus and Serena were different. I think I remember coming down to your academy and watching them hit, but the thing, and you were working, you were the first person I saw that had them hitting left-handed to work on their two-hand backhand. Do you remember that? Yeah, they hit left-handed. I mean, there was like arms and legs and hair flying everywhere, off balance, open stance. And Serena was just, she was all over the map. But when they, because they were nine and 10. So, but when they started competing, you know, I just saw Serena would almost fall down, Shanda, to get to the ball. Mm-hmm. That's how hard she tried to get to the ball every time. And, you know, to have that in a young female, to me, was like gold. Because I think you can teach the strokes. But, and I, I just, and then I could see how big they were going to be and strong and how they move. And I just thought right then and there, not only could they be one in the world, with the right guidance and input, they could transcend the sport. Mm. And I went on the record early on. This is how I felt. And that's why I went all in. And I know you can try hard, and, you know, be a great competitor. And you need more than that. But they checked a lot of bo- boxes, size, speed, strength. You know, you got to project when they're older. Um, and just a desire that they just didn't want to lose. Yeah. And they just didn't want, and I could, I feel that. I saw that in Sharapova. I saw that in Roddick. You know, it's just an innate thing. You can't go to Walgreens and buy it. 
But if you already have it baked in, it's huge. Well, it's huge. Also, also, Rick, I think about you um, as, be, you know, one of the first one. A lot of people were not able to be in their little clique. You know, it was only a very few in the beginning. And one of the things that was always, you know, difficult, I, I know for me, and I'm sure for you as well, I can't speak for you, but I'm sure. But when people talked about Richard, they always said, you know, it's like, you know, he's way out there. No way these girls will be number one, you know. So how were you able to, you know, when people asked you that question, how were you able to defend the Richard that you knew and the Richard that people saw? Another great question. You know, I, I should be on the, in the Hall of Fame for dealing with Capriati, <laughs> Pierce, Sharapova, Richard Williams. I mean, I, sh- I should get a trophy just for that. No, you, know, you need to write what, a book on that yeah, one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, that'd get me in trouble. But anyway, no, you know, that's the art of the deal with coaching, not only kids, but dealing with the parents. It's not like Richard acted as if he'd won the lottery when Macy agreed to host the sisters at his academy. Richard, as everyone knew, had a master plan and a unique vision, and he would remind anyone if they forgot. He wasn't going to turn over the training and education of his two Jordans to anyone, no matter how impressive his track record was. This turned out to be not such a big problem for Macy, who fell just as much in love with Richard as he did with his two girls. You know, because Richard would just, if I said left, he'd go right. If I go right, he'd go left. I mean, but we were best friends. And he would just tell him, and when he'd go off and do his thing, then I'd come in and do the dirty work. And he was my best friend. I mean, we were just like that because I was in that circle. And um, because I knew how to deal with human behavior. You know, Mm. I know how to deal with parents. And, you know, if you're just like that, that doesn't work for too long with some of these parents because they're living through their kids. Bessie went with the girls. Uh, But I understood Richard because at the end of the day, I just really respected him, Zena, as a father. You know, he always, the kids brought their books to the courts. The kids always said, thank you, Rick, at the end of the day, even if it was a brutal lesson and they did that. (laughs) He would always take them to the mall. He'd take them to the beach. Not that parents don't do that, but he he was such a great dad. I'm telling you, because I've, I've seen this thing like no one else, you know, and I really respected that, the balance, because, you know, he's saying all these crazy things. There's all this publicity. He's putting all this pressure on them, and they were bulletproof. He prepared them. They used to go home after practice. He'd put up a tripod. He was doing interviews after dinner of answering them, asking them questions, telling them how really not to answer the question, you know, (laughs) and he had this I don't know. You know, yeah. is it, a lot of parents might follow that playbook, but you better have the goods. Someone that's well, run, that can run and fast and athletic. And so much of this, what he said, he goes, Rick, they're not only going to make a movie about my daughter someday, they're going to make a movie about me. Yeah, and I'm sitting there he going. Did say, he used to say that all the time. <laughs> Let's get that forehand a little more under control. You know, this is my mind. I'm just looking at making the kids better. But uh, he was right. But that's, you know... Uh, kind of my next question is with regard to Richard, because he knew exactly what he saw for his, his daughters, what they were going to be one and two in the world at the same time, they were going to be winning majors. He had everything sort of thought out and planned. You saw how good they were as competitors, but did you, did you believe everything that he said? And why did people have so much trouble? Why was there so much doubt 
about what he was saying. Are you kidding? He was in their face all the time. I mean, mean, I want to get some insight into that. I mean, it was incredible, you know, being a player during that. But from your perspective. Well, you got to understand, first off, you know, people don't want you to be legendary before you've even played a tennis match. Mm. And then you got, you know, two African-American girls coming into predominantly white sport. And then you got this dad who's just all over the place. There's Rick Macy saying, I think you know, she's better than Capriati. They can be number one. There's all this publicity, you know. So, yeah, and I think that created a lot of resentment. But you're right. The fact that the sisters did not play junior tournaments provided endless opportunity for criticism. The accepted path to the top of the rankings for junior players was to compete in official USTA-sanctioned tournaments starting at the local level and working up as results and talent allowed. Instead, the sisters chose to take a route comparable to some basketball prodigies who skipped college to go directly to the pros. One side effect of their strategy was that with no official results to go on and no chance to see the girls in action, rumors and doubts flourished. And remember, Serena at that point was less ready than Venus to make a public debut. She's hibernating three and a half years at the academy, never winning a match. I'm telling you, she used to lose Venus. I'm talking Venus. Serena was behind. You know, she didn't mature until a little later. And when they changed the age eligibility rule in 1994, mainly because of Jennifer or whatever the yeah. reasons were. And, and I just want to give a little background. That age eligibility rule uh, started limiting the number of tournaments you could play at certain ages. So at 14, 15, yeah. 16, 17, and, it became staggered. When before Venus, that, it was open. And Venus and Kornikova were the last two that came yeah. in before. Correct. Mm-hmm. But you know what, what really happened? Because they made that ruling in 94, because Richard just kept putting off when she's going to play, when she's going to play, I said, Richard, Here's what's going to happen now. You're going to have someone dictate to you how much you can play unless Venus plays right now and we get a wild card into a tournament. (laughs) And so we talked about it and he said, let's get her the wild card. So we got her in the Bank of the West Classic Mm. in California and Oakland. And, you know, I to answer your question now. I didn't know, Shand, I didn't know if balls were going to fly all over the court like (laughs) missiles from North Korea. I had no idea because I've seen Venus running the net 100 miles an hour, hit swing volleys off the fence. So I didn't know what was going to happen. I just knew one thing. Whoever watched this little girl, they were going to say, wow, I never saw someone run like that with legs like that and such an aggression and such open stance from everywhere. Now, I don't know how she was going to do, but I knew people with, with a vision of someone 14 years old walking off, entering a pro tournament, playing 57 in the world, Sean Stafford, beating her four and three. I remember that match. Venus after the match, she's just bouncing up and down like a pogo (laughs) stick, that biggest smile on her face, happy. And what was funny, because we never sit down at the academy. Even to this day, I don't let the kids sit down. And Bud Collins, late great Bud Collins said on ESPN, he goes, there's a, Rick told her, there's a chair there for the next match you play Sanchez Vicario, you're allowed to sit down. Venus never sat down at all the whole match and was bouncing on the changeover because she didn't know the chair was to sit down. Why, why well, didn't you uh, want them sitting? I just then it's too hard to get up. I just <laughs> have to be on the show. I well, don't know. I'm, I'm a little different with some of this. But Venus, that, that's a true story. But 
the look well, on her face, I remember my whole life. She was the happiest. And she went in that press conference. And so many people wanted her to fail, sadly, because mm. of Richard. And she was amazing. She says, thank you very much. Yes, it was great. I had a blast. Well, that's, it, was, it was it was amazing. That's you know it's interesting to me because you know I remember I remember all of that and uh, as well as her coming in and not knowing that she had to go to a press conference. But one thing I want to go back to because Richard used to always say this, and people always said you know he's crazy when he says this. He used to always say that Serena was better than Venus, and no one believed him. What what was your encounter on that? Early on. Well, I still feel this in my heart, and I tell this to a lot of people. I think if Venus would have stuck to the plan of taking the second serve and coming in behind it and coming to the net a lot more, I think she'd have been the greatest player of all time. Mm. I really do. I think Venus, when she got on the tour, could athlete her way around the court and still win matches. Don't get me wrong. She's like one of the greatest no, ever. I, we get you. She didn't play to her, she didn't play to her strengths, and I think – whether that's her choice or whatever, because she came to the, she came in at 33 times in that match in Oakland as a 14 year old. Mm -hmm. She came like 30 sometimes against Steffi Graf when she was 15. So, and uh, she came at 30 sometimes against Novotna at Wimbledon. The grass kind of made her go forward. So she didn't play the way I thought she could have used her assets. But to answer your question, uh, I never thought Serena would be better until they got older because Venus was very stick to it, very serious. And Serena was, uh, she was the prankster. She wasn't mature <laughs> enough. Still she is. wasn't serious <laughs> enough. I remember one of my favorite stories, if I can tell it real quick, she's on the court and she's just standing there and Venus is on the next court. I said, Serena, you got to move your feet. She goes, why? <laughs> now she was a member. She was 11. I go, well, you told me you want to be number one. She goes, I will be number one. And I said, well, how can I get you to move your feet? She goes, Rick, I'm really hungry. I want you to go get me some curly fries out of the <laughs> snack machine, a Pepsi, uh, a Snickers bar. And on the way to work, Daddy drove by the stand, and they were selling Green Day T-shirts. Can you have Scott wow, get one Green in the morning? Day. And you see that girl over there? <laughs> Venus on there. She goes, I'll make her look slower than molasses. So I had Scott go get the curly fries, the Snickers bar, the Pepsi. The next day I said, don't worry about anything. So she, for one hour, she was moving her feet. So it's like Niagara Falls coming off this little 11 year old. It got to be three o'clock and she turned around at me and she was, you better have that Green Day t-shirt here in the morning, Rick. <laughs> now, I, but I like that. Yeah. But, but once again, I got a lot out of that hour where it was 95 degrees, middle sun, you know. Serena was the best. I'm telling you, she's like a character. You're listening to season two the GOAT, Serena, and we've been hearing from Rick Macy. We'll have more from him when we come back. When you are around tennis long enough, you begin to see how much of a player's success or failure is about intangibles. Desire, confidence, resistance to pressure, mental as well as physical strength. Those can't be taught even by the best teaching pros in the world. And as one of them, Macy knows that 
better than anyone. Rick, I, I, I was always curious about, you know, because when I met you, saw you or whatever, you just kind of seem a little more laid back. And, you know, then there was Richard. But the confidence that people don't really even talk about that much came from Oracine. So how did you see that? She wasn't around as much as as Richard. I just think that um, both the girls just had this inner belief, you know, and mm-hmm. they just expected they were going to be number one. They were athletes and they were you can say that to anybody. But like I said, they just had all these other attributes that I don't think people really respect enough. Because when they start getting good, you can say, well, she's bigger or she's stronger. You still got to play. You know, you got to be able to handle pressure. You got to be, you know, so I I just think they're going down as two of the best players of all time. Well, I'm I'm curious when you talk about some of these stories and, and with Serena, uh, early on, not being as good as Venus, and but Richard believing she would be better, you kind of seeing some of these qualities that really maybe are still there today, right? I mean, how do how have you seen the evolution of Serena, having seen her at such a young age, seeing those qualities, seeing the player she's become, how she's evolved? How do you see that, and especially in perspective uh, with all the other great players that you've coached from early ages? I see the same Serena as when I had her when she was little. She's, a, you know, experience that, you know, you can't take the place of experience. I see the exact same qualities, except you're you know, bigger, stronger, faster athlete. She has this rage for competition, and you've seen it come out at interesting times. <laughs> you know, I always tell people she, in her own mind, she probably still today thinks she's undefeated. She mm. just ran out of time. She probably never lost. You know, when you're at that level, LeBron James, Serena, you, your mind's a little different. The media doesn't understand. People don't understand you. She was always like that. So I don't see any change whatsoever. Maybe she laid back a little bit more that she has, you know, a little girl. But I don't I see the same exact Serena. Well, it's interesting, too, because she's, you know, the baby of the family. I got it because I was the baby of the family. I believe that everything is supposed to be around me. And Serena definitely, and it was always interesting how, you know, I saw that and how other people looked at it. And, but how, how Venus saw it, because she was like, Venus was the older sister always taking care of Serena. But Serena as the baby always felt everything's about me. Mm -hmm. And didn't like to lose. Right. (laughs) So, so how, how, how did you manage that from early on? You know, how, how do you kind of help a player continue to develop? Because that's kind of one of the hardest things. You know, you're going to lose early on, right? Yeah, like they never they never won practice matches, but they were playing older people, mm-hmm. mainly hitting partners and colleagues. They just never won. Could you imagine not winning a practice match in two and a half years? Can't I mean, know. you'd have been by eight other academies by then. You know, you'd have left. Well, know, and not only Richard. that, but to still have the belief which yeah. never left. So, so how, how did that continue? Well, I think it's, this is a great lesson for anybody. It's not about ever winning and losing. And I know that's easy to say. It's about learning. It's about getting better. You only got control of your attitude. The winning and losing is going to take care of itself. You know, it's not where you start. It's really where you finish. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's, they always thought about working on their game, getting better angles, you know, working on their serve. They used to drain a whole public shopping cart every night of serves. <laughs> I tell all these people now at the academy, 
you know, uh, how many serves these girls hit and how they worked on yeah. slice serve and throw the ball away the right. And Serena, and I told her, I said, you're going to have the best serve in women's tennis someday. She goes, I know I will. And don't, I mean, don't, is, don't leave I love out that. Don't, I love that stuff. Don't leave out. Used to take the old wood rackets and would throw them down to the other end. <laughs> yeah, Serena really liked that. You she know, loved just, that drill. <laughs> yeah. Why? Why? Why that drill? So actually, really, and and Rick, you're better to help with this. But throwing the racket just gives you the nice fluid motion up at the top. Yeah, you know, I had the girls listen. They they did taekwondo. They did boxing. They did ballet. They threw the football. Um, you got to understand, they did. They were already athletic. And I just try to create an environment to make him even more athletic. And I think that's why Richard and I clicked because he knew I knew sports and my heart was in the right place. And so, you know, all I can say is, you know, Serena, um, what she has done, this does not surprise me whatsoever because I could see what was on the inside. And let's face it, when you have a serve like that, that can hit spots, if she wouldn't have that serve, maybe she'd have been gone five years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's interesting. You so, know, that's just bang. And she gets it in when she wants it. Yeah. She's like anybody else. Yeah, everybody gets nervous and whatever, but uh, she's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's been a huge weapon. And, you know, so we want to ask you one last question here. What was your favorite Serena moment? My favorite Serena. Well, I told you one about the curly fries and the Snickers, but <laughs> we have this huge, we have this huge, well, there's so many of them. Okay. Um, I have one of Venus too. I got to get him, but so we have this huge sand pit and all the kids would play tag. Okay. They would oh, like 40 kids in a sand pit playing tag. So the first time we played, uh, Serena's chasing someone to play tag. Are you ready for this? She would tag the person with a closed fist. <laughs> And I said, Serena, she Serena, punch him to so tag you, you, you got to tag him. You don't play, you don't play tag with a close fist. And when she hears that story, she, she laughs because that's as true as can be. And one other thing real quick, uh, they did a, a doubles match against Billy Jean King and Rosie Casals mm. at Hilton Head. We got invited up there when they were like 11 and 12. And it was, they just got done playing two of the greatest double players ever. We're on the way back to the airport. I'm sitting there with Serena and Venus is behind me talking. Now, you got to remember, they just played two of the greatest players ever. And there was like 5,000 people watching. They played doubles. They were slamming balls at Billy G. They were just start trying to hit them. <laughs> and I'm here, Venus, back here talking. I'm going, there's Orsine. There's Richard. And I turn around. And Venus is back there with a doll. Hey, Venus, how'd you play today? I played very good. How did you volley? <laughs> She's having a conversation with a doll. And they just got off the court with these Grand Slam greatest doubles players ever. And I think for everybody, and Richard knew that I knew that, their kids first and tennis players second. Oh, I love, love it. Story. Love it. And a fantastic way to end this. This has been a real treat, Rick, and we so appreciate it. Wow, what an incredible story, an improbable story of taking nothing and building something absolutely you know, unheard of. And Richard Williams, his ideas of, of what he wanted for his daughters, for Venus and Serena. And also, we saw the power of faith and family, how important family was um, in this story. Wow. You know, what was interesting to me in this whole situation is how they started and how it was the making of a goat. And, you know, it was also interesting to hear uh, Coach Rick Macy talk about what he saw 
in Serena, Venus's game, Serena in particular, because it wasn't about the tennis and, and how she was hitting the ball necessarily, but it was about her attitude and her approach. And he saw something special in her intensity. Uh, and, and it was incredible to hear his perspective. Well, Rick saw what we call the it in both Venus and Serena. Well, we hear so much as well about the bond between Venus and Serena. And coming up on episode two, we're going to focus on the power of sisterhood and how important Orsine Price, Serena's mom, was to the whole family dynamic. You won't want to miss it. Join us for episode two. The Goat Serena was written by Pete Boda. This season is hosted by Zena Garrison and Chanda Rubin. Produced and directed by Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Our consulting producer is Andrew Kalb. Production assistance from Anita Okoye. And our social media consultant is Stephen Tompkins. Original music by Andy Marvel. Our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers, Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA and Susan Canavan. Podcasts.